This is Ozarks at Large for Wednesday, June 21st, the first day of summer. I'm Kyle Kellams. And I'm Rachel Sanchez-Smith. Later this hour, we continue our series of profiles on Latina leaders in Northwest Arkansas. Wendy Echeverria profiles Veronica Garcia in the latest episode of Inspirando el Futuro, stories about Latina leaders in Northwest Arkansas. First, Ozark Circle for Choice is an all-volunteer mutual aid collective which offers no-cost support for people seeking reproductive help as well as access to abortion. Arkansas Abortion Support Network, based in central Arkansas, also provides assistance with abortion costs and travel. As the first anniversary of the U.S. Supreme Court decision overturning a constitutional right to abortion approaches, Ozarks at Large's Jacqueline Froelich reports on how abortion aid activists are navigating Arkansas's abortion ban. In the wake of the June 24, 2022 Supreme Court ruling Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization, which nullified a 50-year-old constitutional right to abortion in America, leaving states to decide, Arkansas was among 13 to enact trigger abortion bans. A year later, a total of 14 states fully ban abortion, even for pregnancies that are the result of rape or incest, with six more states enacting partial bans. Arkansans seeking to safely terminate an unwanted pregnancy are now forced to travel long distances at great cost. The ban disproportionately harms pregnant black and brown women. Founded in the autumn of 2020, Ozark Circle for Choice, an all-volunteer mutual aid collective, is on call to help, says organizer Taylor Hearn. So I would say at any given time of like very active people, we call the circle, I would say varies anywhere from, you know, 20 to 25 people. Hearn says the circle does not charge for any services rendered. So we do not charge for anything that we offer. It's all volunteer. It's mutual aid. So the, a tenant of mutual aid is providing help to people in your community because that's how, what you feel you should be doing because everybody is stronger with a community. And if you're going through something and you have nobody that you can reach out to, I wouldn't ever want like a barrier of access to be money. Along with out-of-state abortion guidance, the Circle provides free condoms, pregnancy tests, and over-the-counter emergency contraceptives, which remain legal for now in Arkansas, referred to as Plan B. If you ever need a Plan B and you don't have $60, because that's a wild amount of money, um, reach out. Because I, I personally have 15 boxes in my in my bedroom for people when they call up and they're like, hey, need a plan B? And I can just be like, I'm on my way. Do you need a breakfast sandwich? Circle for Choice is not a registered nonprofit, so is barred from obtaining philanthropic grant funding. Nor does the Circle have a board of directors. Members don't have titles. Decisions are made by collective consensus. Hearn says even before Roe was declared unconstitutional last summer, their work was perilous. Abortion wasn't super accessible to people in the Ozarks before Roe fell. And so before that, it was, how do we get folks to Little Rock um, from, you know, wherever we're at, from Fayetteville, Benville, Harrison, wherever? Like, how do we get folks there? Up until last June, Little Rock Family Planning Clinic was the only medical site in Arkansas to offer surgical abortions in this state, along with the Little Rock-based Planned Parenthood Clinic, which provided only medication abortions. When those services ended under the Arkansas ban, they have forced Circle volunteers to quickly pivot, Hearn says. It was a wild experience, but I think 
in all of it, if you have to like try to find a silver lining, is that we had an entire group of people who were like, okay, we're dedicated to figuring this out. Like, where do we go now? So is it Overland Park? Is it right outside of St. Louis? Is, are we getting people to New Mexico? Like, what do we have to do? Figuring out how and where to safely transport pregnant clients long distances to states where access to medication and surgical abortion remains legal. Earlier this year, pro-life extreme conservative lawmakers in Arkansas attempted but failed to pass a bill to pursue murder charges against Arkansas women who have abortions, which would be classified as homicide. For security purposes, those seeking abortion assistance from Ozark Circle for Choice are first instructed to search the Circle's website or Instagram page. Then, to arrange an abortion, pregnant clients are required to either talk with a Circle volunteer by cell or communicate via Signal. Signal is a double-ended encrypted messaging app. Uh, The double-ended encryption uh, keeps our communications secure. They also just have like features of where they will disappear after a certain while. It's like completely wiped clean. And so that just keeps everybody's like private medical information or their just private things that they're going to that keeps it between the person that has reached out and the person who is seeking um, what, whatever assistance they may need. For now, it remains legal for Arkansans to travel out of state for medication or surgical abortion care to legal states. The closest are New Mexico, Kansas, Illinois, Indiana, Iowa, and Ohio. Two pro-choice websites, abortionfinder.org or ineedna.com, reveal best options as well as legal frameworks. We will never encourage somebody to break a law or we will never encourage somebody to do something that could potentially land them in any kind of trouble. Um, currently, I think much to the displeasure of uh, certain folks in Arkansas, you are allowed to seek an abortion outside of Arkansas. After the state trigger ban went into effect in Arkansas, we queried the State Department of Health charged with enforcing the ban. The media team declined to comment, but did share copies of cease and desist orders to abortion providers in the state. For this report, a year later, we submitted a Freedom of Information Act request to the agency. Deputy General Counsel Reginald Rogers responded with documents, citing that first, the trigger ban did not require the agency to promulgate enforcement rules or regulations. But after the abortion ban took effect in Arkansas, random unannounced on-site compliance inspections were deployed by the Arkansas Department of Health three times at Little Rock Family Planning Services and five times at the Little Rock Planned Parenthood Clinic. No offenses were documented. The only exception under Arkansas's abortion ban is to, quote, save the life of a pregnant woman in a medical emergency, end quote. Arkansas physicians who terminate a pregnancy not deemed by the state to be a medical emergency face being charged with a felony offense sentenced up to 10 years in prison, and fined $100,000. We requested data from the Department of Health regarding enforcement taken against any physician providing emergency abortions. No complaints were cited. Arkansans are in desperate need of finding abortion care at this time, and we are helping to match resources with them. 
Kieran Music is co-founder of the Arkansas Abortion Support Network, a nonprofit founded in 2016. Before the ban, music and staff provided escort and financial assistance to pregnant people seeking abortions in Arkansas. But over the past year, the network has assisted people to secure safe abortions in legal states. We don't have any way of quantifying how many people are getting care or are getting abortion care right now in Arkansas. We know the numbers had been hovering around the 3,000 um, a year range, 3,500 a year. We know how many we're helping to pay for, which is hundreds. And I don't have an exact number, but we're helping pay for their procedures. Uh, but we're also helping to pay for travel as well. And that involves hotel fare, airfare, various different um, ways to spend money. So it's just so hard for us to quantify how many Arkansans are being left in the dust. In the six months leading up to the abortion ban in Arkansas, Department of Health data show nine abortions were performed with parental consent on nine girls under age 15, 167 teenage girls ages 15 to 19, and 1,445 adults ages 20 to 54, a total of 1,621 induced abortions. A majority, 875, were black teens and women, along with 213 Hispanic teens and women. Before the ban, Arkansas had the highest maternal mortality rate in the nation. States with trigger bans, experts say, will only see death rates rise. The misinformation is huge. Uh, people tend to know that abortion is illegal in Arkansas, but they don't know they have options. Which is why the Arkansas Support Network opened the U Center in Little Rock. Your options understood. That's We're open at the former abortion clinic. Every weekend, um, we have what I call a crisis pregnancy center of our own. Um, we are handing out plan B without questions, condoms, pregnancy test kits. We will help people make appointments, get them out of state. The network posts educational information about self-managed medication abortions, linking to trusted sites including Plan C and Aid Access. Music says Arkansas Abortion Support Network, on occasion, collaborates with Ozark Circle for Choice. They've just been amazing to work with and make sure that um, people get care that they're aware of. Ozark Circle for Choice and Arkansas Abortion Support Network, advocates say, are in critical need of monetary donations and supplies to countervail the devastating consequences of Arkansas's abortion ban. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Jacqueline Froelich. If you'd like to share Jacqueline's story or any of the pieces you hear on Ozarks at Large, you can use the links at ozarksatlarge.com to listen again and share stories through email and social media. And if you'd like to simultaneously take a virtual stroll through Ozarks at Large archives and Arkansas history, you can now easily find all 140 plus of our stories inspired by archives from the David and Barbara Pryor Center for Arkansas Oral and Visual History. They can be found at the Pryor Center website, priorcenter.uark.edu. Just look for the Projects tab at the top of the page and then look for Ozarks at Large logo. How many times have you said to a friend, I was listening to KUAF and heard this story. 
That's what KUAF is all about. The stories, news, and insights that make you stop and think and start your own conversations. There's something new to share every day, whether it's political analysis on Morning Edition, an inspiring guest on Ozarks at Large, or an insight into a current issue from All Things Considered. It's radio you want everyone you know to hear. And it's radio that exists thanks to the generous support of listeners like you. As we celebrate 50 years on the air in 2023, show how much you value KUAF by becoming a sustaining member today at supportkuaf.com. We are constantly reminded that these are not easy times. So many consequential issues make trustworthy reporting on KUAF absolutely essential. KUAF is a shared public resource, and we rely on support from listeners like you to help pay for it. KUAF is built on shared values of journalistic independence, public service, local connections, and an expansive view of what's possible when we seek common ground. Join many of your neighbors and go online now to support KUAF.com. Be sure to check out our new limited-time thank-you gifts and make a donation today. And thank you. The Botanical Garden of the Ozarks is hosting its family-friendly summer series, Terrific Tuesday Nights, every Tuesday from June through August from 5 to 8.30 p.m. This series allows the Northwest Arkansas community to experience the garden on beautiful summer evenings free of charge. Entertainment and activities will be planned each week. More information available at bgozarks.org. KUAF is supported by Format Festival, merging music, art, and technology September 22nd through the 24th in Bentonville. This three-day festival features live performances from Diggable Planets, Alanis Morissette, Leon Bridges, and more, plus art experiences and installations. For tickets and information, format-festival.com. Ahead on our show today, new research from the University of Arkansas for Medical Sciences continues to indicate racism can have a profound effect when it comes to vaccine hesitancy. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, You know, we think uh, one of the important areas that this research should head next is to look at more indicators of structural racism. What we've looked at are sort of the interpersonal dimensions of racism. Um, And actually, those can be much harder to change, right, if we're thinking about ways to intervene that might reduce hesitancy over time. That conversation in about six and a half minutes on today's Ozarks at Large. Jennifer Acuff is a researcher and scientist with the Arkansas Agricultural Experiment Station, the research arm of the University of Arkansas System Division of Agriculture. Her research focuses on food safety in a variety of areas. Part of my job actually is responding to people who send emails to say, I have a question about this. I'm not sure if this is safe or, you know, I'm I'm making this home canned good. Is it okay if I do it in this manner? And I actually can do the research a little bit faster to send the resource and save some people some time on that. But um, just feeling empowered to look from multiple sources, I think is very important. You can hear more in the latest edition of Short Talks from the Hill, a research podcast from the University of Arkansas. You can listen at KUAF.com, at arkansasresearch.uark.edu, or wherever you get your podcasts.
Arkansas's law banning medical treatments for minors seeking gender transition is being struck down by a federal judge. The 80-page ruling from Judge James J. Moody of the Federal District Court in Little Rock cites the law passed by the Arkansas legislature earlier this year as discriminatory against transgender residents and violated the constitutional rights of doctors. The case challenging Arkansas's new law is seen as a bellwether for laws passed in other states. But yesterday's ruling only affects the Arkansas law. Arkansas's Attorney General Tim Griffin says the state will appeal yesterday's ruling. Talk Business and Politics reports the number of people flying out of Northwest Arkansas National Airport is up 10 percent compared to the same time in 2019, the last full pre-pandemic year. Enplanements at XNA in May were up by almost 9 percent compared to May 2022 and up more than 5 percent when compared to May 2019. Earlier this year, June 2nd, XNA recorded more than 5,000 people going through security in one day. That's the first time that's ever happened. A bipartisan group of lawmakers has formed in the Arkansas legislature in a joint interview with KARK Channel 4's Capitol View, Republican Representative Aaron Pilkington and Democratic Representative Jamie Scott discussed the future caucus, of which they're both a part. The caucus has 40 members, all under the age of 45. Pilkington says the caucus allows for members of different political ideologies to work together on policy ideas. Great resource to kind of go and have these like honest conversations about policy. Uh, one of the things I always tell a lot of my members too is, you know, when you're bipartisan, a lot of times you think like, you know, you have to moderate your views or things like that. And what I like about this group is it's never asked me to not be conservative. It still lets me be as conservative, you know, right wing knuckle dragger, as some people <laughs> might call us, as I need to be. And it still lets, you know, Jamie be the bleeding heart that she is. But yet it's a great place for us to have these dialogues, to talk about policy, to talk about places where we can come together and work on things. During the past legislative session, the caucus worked on a bill to allow more flexibility to students who are pregnant and have a child while in school. Pilkington says he worked on this bill with Representative Ashley Hudson, a Democrat from Little Rock. Work continues by SWEPCO to restore power to people in three states, including Arkansas, after severe storms developed Friday night. A press release from SWEPCO late yesterday listed about 3,100 customers in Arkansas still without power. The utility company says it has received some reports of customers receiving text alerts that power had been restored when it actually had not been. SWEPCO is asking customers that receive such a text but still don't have power to report their outage through the SWEPCO.com website or the utilities mobile app. Governor Sarah Huckabee Sanders is extending the state of emergency she first issued in the spring after a series of tornadoes and severe weather that struck Arkansas on March 31st. Yesterday, the governor issued an extension to the initial state of emergency as applied to commercial carriers engaged in the transportation and delivery of FEMA temporary housing units. The extension expires on August 18th. The highest-ranking Republican in the country will be the featured speaker for the Republican Party of Arkansas's Reagan-Rockefeller dinner this summer. Kevin McCarthy, the Speaker of the House, will be in Little Rock for the dinner on August 18th. Seven of Arkansas Children's Service Lines are receiving national rankings in today's U.S. News & World Report Best Children's Hospitals list. The hospital's pulmonology and lung surgery, nephrology, urology, and cancer services all ranked inside the nation's top 40 ranking. The seven overall services on the list is the highest number of national rankings for the hospital. Springdale Cidery Black Apple is picking up a pair of awards from the 2023 Cidercraft Awards. Black Apple's Hibiscus Cider earned the highest honor, platinum, in the botanical category. 
Dry Me, a new release from the Cidery this year, won the judges' pick in the modern-day category. There are more than 400 submissions from around the country in this year's awards, announced yesterday by Cidercraft magazine. Walton Arts Center is transitioning to digital tickets. The venue sent notices to patrons that tickets for the 2023-24 season will be delivered to ticket holders digitally in their accounts beginning later this month. And the Northwest Arkansas Naturals continue a six-game series in Tulsa tonight. Last night, the Nats defeated Tulsa 6-2. The Naturals' next game at Arvest Ballpark isn't until Tuesday, July 4th, when they will host the Arkansas Travelers. This is Ozarks at Large. A new study conducted by researchers at the University of Arkansas for Medical Sciences finds people experiencing racial discrimination are more reluctant to get vaccinations. The research indicates several factors can influence vaccine hesitancy, including age, gender, and race. Yesterday, Don Willis, assistant professor in the Department of Internal Medicine at UAMS and a medical sociologist, came to the Anthony and Susan Hoy News Studio to discuss the research. We sort of confirmed some some earlier research that had sh- has shown for a while now that uh, people's social positioning mm-hmm. matters, sociodemographic uh, uh, factors matter in terms of who feels more or less hesitant. Um, and, and so, you know, we confirmed some of that prior research, although, again, we're looking at general vaccine hesitancy as opposed to one specific type of, uh, or hesitancy one towards one specific vaccine. Younger people, this this was one of the, the things that I found that, I don't know if it surprised me, but, it, you know, raised an eyebrow. Younger people, say 18 to early 40s or around there, are more hesitant than people perhaps closer to my age. Yeah, so one of the things that we know influences uh, these feelings of hesitancy is your sort of appraisal of risk. And right Mm -hmm. now, what's on many people's mind is, of course, a COVID-19 infection, and we know that the risk is much higher as, uh, you know, your age increases. So... Um, being less hesitant for the younger groups, it, it, you know, we could speculate that maybe it's because they're appraising their risk as lower. Although we know that, <laughs> of course, uh, their infection doesn't influence just their own risk. It can influence the risk of those around them who may be older as well. So, um, but of course, that initial risk appraisal, most people are thinking about how is it going to affect my health right. if, if I were to get infected. One of the big takeaways for me reading this research was that people who've experienced over lifetimes, um, you know, uh, episodes of racism or, or, or things like that are far more hesitant. Yeah, so this was a big piece of, of what we wanted to look at with this research, in part because many early studies, um, you know, before the pandemic even, <laughs> uh, but of course also during 
COVID-19 had noted racial disparities. Um, and s some of those studies would just simply report the disparity and then leave it at that. Others might discuss that disparity and say, well, we think maybe these racial disparities could be related to historical racism or current and ongoing medical racism. What very few studies had done is empirically test the question of whether experiences of uh, racism and racial discrimination were you know, related to feelings of vaccine hesitancy. A couple other studies had done that for influenza, uh, hesitancy towards influenza specifically. Um, but as far as we know, uh, you know, we, we think we're one of the first to look at it for general vaccine hesitancy and actually show the relationship that um, as your experiences of racial discrimination over the course of your life increase, so do your odds of reporting hesitancy towards vaccines in general. Can we make suppositions or, or, or connections why that would be? Well, um, we, we, could, we could speculate some. Uh, you know, I think... I guess what I'm asking yeah. is, this research doesn't do that. First, you have to find out that there is the relationship between systemic racism and hesitancy. Exactly. So what we've done is establish an association, right? Um, we're simply saying these things tend to move with one another. Um, but as, as you're pointing out, we don't know what the exact mechanisms are. And it's also important to note that um, our measure of experiences of racial discrimination includes those experiences across many different types of situations. So what some prior research had done is looked specifically at medical racism. Mm -hmm. That's rather intuitive, right? If you go to the doctor and you experience unequal treatment or unfair treatment, uh, why would you trust that person later to put something in your body, right? Um, that, that's rather intuitive. But then there are also some, some of our earlier work, actually, uh, when we looked at these separately in Arkansas, this was specifically for the COVID-19 vaccine, though. Uh, what we found was it was experiences of unfair treatment by police or in court systems, uh, so we still don't know exactly what, you know, you know, what types of experiences of discrimination or uh, which institutions it's linked to most. But there's there's some evidence that we probably should be thinking beyond just our medical institutions and how treatment in those institutions matters for vaccine hesitancy. It may be that. Uh, you know, if you experience hesitancy uh, with institutions that, uh, you know, collect a lot of information about mm -hmm. you, mm -hmm. uh, that that in turn creates, uh, you know, feelings of hesitancy towards going to them for services later, even if 
you've heard that those preventive services could, you know, prevent an, a severe illness. So, much like research that is, I guess, physical, right? Can this diet lead, you know, to to higher chances of this disease? Much like those have to work off each other. Studies like this. Here's something that someone else can use now and try to go deeper. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, we think uh, one of the important areas that this research should head next is to look at more indicators of structural racism. What we've looked at are sort of the interpersonal dimensions of racism. Um, and actually, those can be much harder mm -hmm. to change, right, if we're thinking about ways to intervene that might reduce hesitancy over time, uh, it, it could be more difficult to change one on, how one-on-one -on -one interactions go, although we could we can think of some ways that we might do that. But uh, where you can r potentially move the lever much more is at the structural level and policy level. So we hope that, uh, you know, our work might lead to other scholars or perhaps ourselves down the road looking at, you know, dimensions of structural racism or institutional racism that might also be linked with hesitancy as well. I think many people will step back and go, of course, structural or systemic racism will affect societal health, mm -hmm. but might not think of it in as, you know, direct effect as this. Yeah. So uh, th there is a whole body of, of work that has looked specifically at that, and it's, well, it's, I'd say it, it's a gr fast-growing body of work uh, on ways that structural racism can impact health. Um, and some of it has, you know, theorized the mechanisms mm -hmm. through which that can occur, though a lot of it actually focuses on uh, the physiological response a body has when it experiences a stressor. So uh, it, much of it talks about like social stressors that could be the experience of discrimination that someone has, but uh, it could also be witnessing discrimination oh. uh, or, you know, witnessing uh, unjust deaths. Right. Uh, and, and those sorts of things can be uh, expose someone to stressors that then actually create what's sometimes called as a weathering uh, process and deteriorates health over time. Uh, this would be a little bit different mechanism than that, though, in the sense that, like, the way racism would be impacting health in this case is um, through altering uh, decisions about right. preventive, uh, receiving preventive care such as vaccination. So um, certainly there's a lot more work to be done to understand exactly how you get from uh, these experiences of uh, whether it's interpersonal racism or more structural racism to, you know, people's feelings about the vaccine. And as you said, I think there are probably a lot of people out there who will hear this and say, well, of course, right? Of right. course, there is this relationship. Um, 
but we think it's really important to demonstrate it in the research in part because what can happen when you report racial disparities in health without considerations of uh, the, the social context and, and racism and things like that is it can get interpreted as uh, it can send a message of either victim blaming right in the case of decisions about vaccination. Uh, actually, Ibram X. Kendi, this prompted Ibram X. Kendi to write a, I think it was a New York Times, it might have been a different outlet, uh, with the headline, Stop Blaming Black People for Dying of COVID-19. Um, and, uh, but the other potential problem, if it's not actually shown in the research, is that people could see, can see uh, reports of racial disparities in health and start to, uh, and get the impression that those racial disparities are due to innate biological differences in race. Mm -hmm. And so it can perpetuate a myth of uh, biological race, which at this point we know from the literature is not uh, supported by any evidence. So that's the other reason for actually going ahead and documenting and demonstrating and empirically testing it is not because we believe it's going to be surprising, right? <laughs> uh, but because it's important f for the record and to to show accurately what we you know is is most likely happening. Well, you're also scientists. I mean, yeah, you're not right. going to say, "Yeah, that that sounds right." Let's yeah. just assume that's yeah. right and go on. Yeah, there's a there's a, a sociologist slash physicist, which is a weird co uh, combination, but. Uh, named Duncan Watts, who's uh, said very often, like, everything is obvious once you know the answer. <laughs> right, right. Right. And and they'll do this thing where they present results that are untrue, and people will rationalize it, right? They'll say, well, of course that's true, and then present them the real results, which are the opposite. <laughs> right. And, and so that's kind of the trap of, of common sense sometimes is uh, once we know the answer, we think, well, we could have just guessed this, right? Uh, so until we do the empirical analysis, we don't really uh, absolutely know for sure. But of course, there are tons of people out there whose uh, lived experience could have, <laughs> you know, would have supported this before we showed it empirically or through uh, an academic outlet. But um, one of the other things I think I, I read in the report, you can correct me if I'm coming to an inaccurate conclusion, is that just having access or regularly going to a general practitioner can reduce hesitancy for any vaccine. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and there are a lot of different uh, th thoughts as to why that is, but that's right. I mean... Healthcare access is critically important. Not only does uh, you know regularly going to the doctor, as we show in this research, uh, not only does that matter, as well as um, just having access to a a, a personal uh, provider matter. But 
we know when it comes to the actual act of becoming vaccinated, a healthcare provider's recommendation is consistently the most important. Like, maybe I shouldn't say most important. It's consistently very important in in the research in terms of what moves someone to becoming vaccinated, regardless of, of their feelings. So, you know, we've started to look at that question as well for hesitant people only. Mm. And even among people who report they're hesitant, uh, what we see is a doctor's or nurse's recommendation for the vaccine still matters. Um, and so if you don't have, obviously, if you don't have a, access to a doctor uh, or you're foregoing care due to cost or you simply haven't um, been regularly to see your doctor, then the opportunity for that social interaction to happen where the recommendation can happen uh, is much less likely to ever occur. Well, and if you're going to a general practitioner who says, oh, you're due for a booster, we can do that now, or I can call the pharmacy to have that shingle shot ready for you tomorrow, that's another step removed. Absolutely. So there's the other element of so one element is that doctors, nurses, healthcare providers in general are trusted. They're trusted sources of information in gen for most folks. Right. Uh, the other element is exactly what you just said, which is an element of convenience. And I'm I guess I'm echoing a little bit about of of what I said earlier, is that um, decisions that are made about receiving care. Those aren't decisions that are only considering your experiences in a medical institution. I think that at this point, um, what we've shown and what other researchers have shown in terms of the connection to uh, racism and experiences of discrimination is that uh, institutions outside of the medical field can also may also be influencing people's decisions about their preventive care. So that to me suggests when we're thinking about reducing vaccine hesitancy with the ultimate goal of increasing vaccine uptake, we need to be thinking about equitable treatment across society. Of course, in the medical institution, uh, of course, there as well, but to not stop there. Thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thank you. Don Willis is an assistant professor in the Department of Internal Medicine at the University of Arkansas for Medical Sciences and a medical sociologist. We spoke yesterday. You can find the link to the study from UAMS with today's show at ozarksatlarge.com or kuaf.com. Crystal Bridges Museum of American Art presents Diego Rivera's America, the first major exhibition focused solely on the Mexican artist in over 20 years. It features his works, digital projections of his murals, and three major paintings by Frida Kahlo. On view now through July 31st. Tickets at crystalbridges.org. Northwest Arkansas Pride returns June 23rd through the 25th for its 19th annual Parade and Festival. Other weekend events include the third annual Trans March, Glitterville with drag superstar Diabetti, and the High Tea Pool Party at Mount Sequoia. 
Information at nwapride.org or NWA Equality's Facebook or Instagram. This is Ozarks at Large. I'm Kyle Callums. And I'm Rachel Sanchez-Smith. Rachel, Friday afternoon, Friday evening, you were somewhere other than this building. I was. I was in downtown Fayetteville at the city's unveiling of the Nelson Hackett plaque, the first and last enslaved person extradited from Canada back to Fayetteville. You know, and his story set off a really important national discourse for extradition policy and how we thought of that in that time. And you'll be able to learn much more about the marker and Nelson Hackett's history on tomorrow's show at noon and 7 on 91.3 KUAF. For a year now, the KUAF Lunch Hour has been bringing you the best in local music and local food once a month here at the KUAF studios. Now we're taking it on the road. KUAF is partnering with local McDonald's owner-operators to bring you the KUAF Lunch Hour Summer Concert Series. It begins in late July and will include three tiny desk-style concerts that will take place at different McDonald's locations across northwest Arkansas, the River Valley, and the Green Country. These three concerts will lead up to a mini-festival called Lunch All Day in September. Performances are set to include Steph Simon of Fire in Little Africa, country singer Joe West, and artist-designer Tylo May. Get ready for a summer of fun, music, and great food. The KUAF Lunch Hour Summer Concert Series, sponsored by McDonald's, begins July 28th. Keep listening to KUAF, your public radio station, for more details. This is Ozarks at Large. I'm Rachel Sanchez-Smith. I'm Kyle Kellams. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support of this public radio program. We're continuing to sample the episodes in the podcast series Inspirando el Futuro, stories about Latina leaders in Northwest Arkansas. This week, host and producer Wendy Echeverria introduces us to Veronica Garcia. The full episode, which can be found at KUAF.com, takes a deep dive into Veronica's history, her family's journey in the United States, her journey as an MBA student, and her hopes to become a leader and empower others in the Hispanic and Latin American communities. Here's an excerpt from the fifth episode of the series. At the age of 12, Veronica's father went through a painful difficulty that propelled him to move to the United States from Mexico alone. My dad moved here because at that time, um, my grandpa was murdered. Veronica says through the pain of losing her grandfather, her dad found the strength to move forward. He had to. In that moment, as a 12-year-old, you know, a kid, essentially, he saw that there was a better promise of a future. Veronica's dad moved to Benavides, Texas, and began working. Veronica says he moved to numerous cities in Texas, and at one point even lived with a retired sheriff to work on his farm. She says he ended up moving to Northwest Arkansas in 1985 after someone told him about the many job opportunities in the chicken factories. Veronica's mom also moved to Arkansas from Mexico in the 90s after visiting family. She says she loved the area and saw potential. Veronica says she has always admired their courage and grit. They came to a country where they didn't know the language. They came to an area of the country that had a very small population of people who even looked like them. Um, they, They had to deal with racism at a much higher level than I have ever dealt with. 
According to the Northwest Arkansas Council, in 1990, 1.3% of the community was Hispanic. Right now, Hispanics account for almost 18% of the population. Can you imagine what it was like for him to be in a new place and be one of the few Hispanics in the area? It can be daunting, but Veronica says her father never let that get to him. My dad has told me stories about him going <clears throat> to bars here in Northwest Arkansas and being kicked out just because they were like, no, no Mexicans. And this is in the late 80s, early 90s. This wasn't years, like 30, 40, 50 years ago. Like, it, I mean, this is recent. And um, well, I guess that was 30 years ago. But, you know, that yeah. at that time, there, there should never have been that type of segregation. Injustice, Veronica says, never stopped her family from dreaming and obtaining their own business. In 1998, they bought a Chinese restaurant from a retired Chinese couple. She says it was a bit unusual, but it was a new adventure. A restaurant full of immigrated Mexicans running a Chinese restaurant. It's not very authentic, but pretty good, I've heard. And um, that was his first business. A year later, Veronica says they went bankrupt which was one of the reasons they ended up homeless and living in a hotel in Springdale. She was young at the time and didn't understand, but says she knew something was wrong because her teachers and counselors at school would ask about her living situation and whether the address on file was really where she lived. And of course I didn't live there. <laughs> we were staying in a hotel and I just remember feeling that pressure of like, what do I say, what do I say? Um, I knew in that moment that, okay, is something wrong with the life that we're living? Because why are these adults pressuring me? And it was scary, you know? And at that point, I I didn't, uh, I mean, I, I didn't know what was going on, but I knew that it felt bad for me. I knew that there was something tense and growing up, I realized just how stressful that was for my parents. Veronica says the address on file was her aunt's residence. Veronica says the first 10 years of her life were the most grueling moments for her family, but her parents never gave up. And by the time her brother was born, things got better, to the point that he never experienced the difficulties Veronica and her parents went through. I feel so happy that he hasn't experienced some of the hardships that we had. And um, it's, it's just a blessing. It's a blessing to, to have what I have. And I'm forever grateful for my parents um, because even through some of the darkest moments, I, I can say that I was loved for, I was cared for, and I had what I needed. Her family. Today, Veronica's family owns a new business, an auto sales shop located in Springdale, Arkansas. And Veronica is pursuing a master's of business administration, also known as an MBA, at the University of Arkansas. Veronica wants to keep helping her family and their business. By being the chief operating officer, she says her goal is to make her family's auto business as successful as it can be by making sure operations run smoothly. 
part of the reason she wanted the MBA degree was to build more essential skills, but it was also due to the lack of Latina representation getting an MBA degree, and she wanted to change that. I googled um, something about like Latinas and MBA, and I saw this ridiculously low number. I think it was less than 10%. I, I can't remember, and I didn't even fact-checked or anything. I, just the first thing that I saw was like, oh, okay, if that's it, then I'm going to apply. Mm -hmm. And I applied. And According to an article from Bloomberg in 2021, quote, students of Hispanic background made up 9.4% of NBA enrollment in the U.S. Veronica says she was accepted into the master's program the second time she applied. First time, a, I applied on the very last day. And by that point, I don't even think they really had any open spots. Mm -hmm. They strongly recommended for me to apply again. And the director at the time reached out to me and he spoke with me and he was like, just apply with the exact same stuff. And because we would love to have you. So again, I applied and immediately I was accepted, thankfully. Veronica says the rejection into the program was a blessing because it was right when COVID hit the community. So the program was online, which she says would have made things hard. According to the Walton College of Business website, there are 40 graduate students in the Walton College of Business MBA program for the 2023 cohort. And university officials say Veronica is one of two Latinas in the MBA program for the 2023 cohort. University officials say race and ethnicity is self-reported by students, and some may choose not to disclose that information. At first, Veronica says she was intimidated by the program. And I remember after the first two weeks, I was even like, maybe I should just drop out. Maybe I should just drop out because I hadn't been in school for three years at that point, and I was like, oh, I'm just going to drop out. Like, this is, this is really intense. It's overwhelming. And then I just had to take a step back and be like, actually, like, I'm just making that up in my head. This is not as intense as it feels. Veronica stayed in the program and says she was glad she did because she's made great friends, mentors, and has gained a wealth of knowledge. But this feeling of, do I belong? Should I be here? Will I be good enough? Am I smart to do this? Will they find out that I'm a fraud? Is it new to some Latino or Latina students? To be completely honest, many students feel this way, regardless of their background or race. And this is often described as imposter syndrome, a psychological experience that makes a person doubt their capability to perform a task or skill. It makes us question our worthiness, Imposter syndrome can be detrimental, and at times it can hinder a student's success, especially for a first-generation student, which is why one professor at the University of Arkansas says it's important to have people in your corner who understand the difficulties that come when trying to navigate the academic world. It is important for us to, you know, as students, but also those of us that are in the classroom or serving in other capacities, because I think this is across the board in other fields, as leaders, quote unquote, or mentors, right? Um, that is, you know, kind of being able to show, you know, it, this is a space that you can make it in 
um, this is a space that needs you. That's Dr. Yahaira Padilla. She's an English, Latin American, and Latino studies professor at the University of Arkansas. Dr. Padilla says she's seen Latino and Latina students struggle for many reasons, particularly first-generation college students, because they are often trying to figure out the ways of a whole new system. Scholarships, loans, FAFSA, internships, research opportunities, and so much more. And most of the time, they do it alone because their parents want to help, but they might not know how. It doesn't really help to say, no, no, I don't see, I don't know why you're struggling. No, it's, you need someone that's kind of like, I've been there, I kind of understand, right? And, and you can do this. Or someone simply saying, if this is not for you, then what else can you do? You know what I mean? But like kind of being able to at least just be a sounding board. You can hear the entire episode of Inspirando el Futuro, stories about Latina leaders in Northwest Arkansas at KUAF.com. The podcast is hosted and produced by Wendy Echeverria. And even though we're nearing the conclusion of her original series, we're going to continue to have more conversations hosted by Wendy online and on the air. She'll be extending the life of the podcast with additional episodes this summer and into the rest of the year. And you know all the reasons you listen to KUAF, the same ones why it's worthy of your financial support. We rely on contributing members for 75% of our annual operating budget. If you listen while getting ready for work, commuting, making dinner, or running errands on the weekend, then go ahead and become a sustaining member today. KUAF is with you throughout your week. You can show your support at supportkuaf.com. This is 91.3 KUAF, Fayetteville, Fort Smith, Bentonville, and Hubbard, a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas. Contributors today include Wendy Echeverria. Our theme is written and performed by Daryl Sean from the Carver Center for Public Radio in downtown Fayetteville. I'm Rachel Sanchez-Smith. I'm Kyle Callums. 